Good morning, everyone. All right, so as Pastor John had mentioned, we are going to be in Mark chapter 4. Um, someday we'll get all the way through Mark, I'm sure of it. Um, but we'll be in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 25. So to set the stage for you guys, if you remember last week, Pastor Preston was talking about the parable of the sower, and Jesus is um, by the sea. He's actually sitting on a boat that's not floating away yet, but there were so many people there, there were so many people pushing in on him that now he's sitting on a boat um, and, and teaching to these people, and he's giving them these parables, um, which the definition we used last week was an ordinary story meant to communicate extraordinary truths. And so Jesus is continuing this conversation with these people. Not really a conversation. He's talking. They're listening. Um, and he's, he's talking to these people that have, that have come to see him. They've, come, they've heard about all the things he's done, and they want to know more about this guy. So that's where, that's where we stand right now. So I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll go from there. Um, this is chap, uh, chapter 4, verse 21 of Mark. He also said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? Isn't it to be put on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed, and nothing concealed that will not be brought to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. By the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and more will be added to you. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So it's a lot of things that don't make a lot of sense, and uh, welcome to parables. So... So now we're going to kind of have to look at this verse by verse and figure out what he's saying. So verse 21, he also said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? Isn't it to be put on a lampstand? All right, so what is this talk of lamps, Jesus? What, what does this mean for us? What does this have to do with anything? So we have to first ask, well, what is the lamp, right? When we, when we talk about metaphor or parables and stuff like that, we, there are words that are being used to represent something else. So what is this lamp representing? Well, some people say that the lamp is the law because it provides light to all of our existence. It shows us all of the things, the things that we do right, the things that we do wrong. That's what the law shows us. And that when we're talking about it being put under a basket or under a bed, um, that's the law being stifled and hidden away by extra laws that religious leaders have given us. So if you think about Jesus in this time, there, were all, there was the regular law and there was laws that maybe the religious elite were saying, well, you have to do this thing a certain way or everything else you do doesn't matter. And that's an explanation, but I think a better interpretation is that Jesus is the lamp. See, if you were to read this in the Greek, um, the phrasing of this verse is not, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket? It's actually, does the lamp come to be put under a basket? Now, the law doesn't have its own motive. It doesn't have its own action. It can't do anything on its own. The law is something that God gave us, that God gave people to, to show us where we fall short and show us how, how holy God is. But the law can't do things. The law can't come in. But Jesus can. Um, the lamp is the subject that is doing the action. Jesus is the one who's doing these actions. So just like how a lamp brings light, Jesus came to bring us the light of his gospel, of his kingdom, the fulfillment of the law. Um, and so we have to think about, well, what is a, ba a lamp for? When we, we say, well, you don't put it under a basket or under a bed. What is a lamp for? Well, and, and how did those lamps back then operate, and what is all this about? And so we think about the lamps back then, and they were these little clay. There's one. They're these little clay things, and you can see there's a big hole in the middle. That's where you'd pour in some oil, and there's a little hole down here, and that's where you'd put a wick 
and that wick would soak up the oil, and you'd light it, and it would burn, and it would give you some light. Now, when I was a kid, I, I had to look up what year. It's probably between 98 and 99, 2000-ish. I don't know when exactly. My mom donated to some organization, and they gave her as a thank you gift a little clay lamp like this. And I wanted to bring it here to have a visual fire demonstration. Um, but I texted my parents. I'm like, do you remember? We got that lamp from like Samaritan's Purse or something. And my parents were like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So then I texted my sisters to see if I was crazy. And I said, do you guys remember that lamp? And I sent a picture. I think it was this picture. I'm like, it looked kind of like this. And my little sister was probably too small. She said no. My older sister was like, vaguely. So I guess I'm the only one with any real memory of this. So I hope I'm not like just fabricating a memory. But... I remember getting one of these lamps around Christmas time, and we were in our living room at the time, and um, this was like the room that, it's called a living room, but you don't live in it, you don't go into this room, only when company's over. Um, we, had, we opened Christmas presents there, we, we had birthday party stuff there, but any other time, kids stayed out of this room. And so we were in this room, this fancy room, and we, my dad lights this thing, and the flame is huge, and there's a lot of black smoke coming up out of there. So we put that out real quick. Um, but I, when I'm reading this passage, I'm thinking of this lamp, and we think about, well, what would happen if I put that lamp under a basket? Well, what are baskets made out of? Sticks and twine and other things. Um, so there's two things that would happen. One, the light would be obstructed. So it would be kind of hard to see if you're using this lamp to, to light your room. And if, remember, back then, there's no street lights outside. There's no, you know, you go into a city or a town now, and you look, and there's, like, light pollution, especially on, like, a kind of hazy night, you can see that like halo of like orange glowing over a city if you're coming into it. There's none of that. It's pitch black. So you're using all these things to light everything. If you put this basket over it, it's going to make it hard to see. If you put it under a piece of furniture, it's going to be hard to see. Um, and Jesus is talking about his coming here. He's saying that he didn't come to be hidden away. He's up to this point been doing miracles. He's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. And these, if, these are things, if you look back in the Old Testament, other people have done before. God's used other people to do things similarly. So if he doesn't reveal even more of who he is, um, he's just another one of these prophets, right? But Jesus is saying in this passage, I didn't come here to be hidden away. R.C. Sproul, um, I watched a sermon lecture thing. His sermons are kind of just like lectures. Um, and I watched one he did about this, and he, and he said this way. He said, Jesus is saying here, I didn't come to be hidden. I came as a lamp so the light I bring can be seen by all who dwell in darkness. So Jesus isn't coming to just be another one of those guys. Um, and we ask, so the light can be hidden under a basket, but is the lamp changed at all by putting it under a basket? No, the lamp is still there. It's still producing light. It's not, we don't put it under a basket and wonder, well, is that lamp still lit? If you turn on a flashlight or any other light lit device, your phone, put it under that basket. Is your phone still a phone? Yes. Is it still producing light? Yes, the basket doesn't change anything. So that's one thing that's going to happen if you put it under a basket. Oh, sorry. Um, and two, it's a fire hazard. As I mentioned earlier, baskets are made of grass and sticks and twigs and flammable things. And couches are also made of flammable things. Um, especially back then, you got some cloth maybe, some linen. Um, you have wood. Um, there's a danger in attempting to stifle the gospel. A couple weeks ago, Brent was preaching about... Um, grieving the Spirit and, the, and, and blaspheming against the Holy Spirit and how that's a big problem. And this is the same kind of idea, that if you try and hide the gospel, if you try and, and push, put it out and you try and smother it, well, things are going to catch on fire. There's going to be a problem for you. 
So Jesus moves along into verse 22, and he says, For there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed, and nothing concealed that will not be brought to light. Again, there are two truths here. That Jesus will be revealed as God. His dignity, his holiness will be revealed. God has not brought his kingdom near to do nothing. Um, Something's going to happen here, and Jesus is building to it. As we move through Mark, we're going to see more and more that Jesus, Jesus is going to start telling us more and more explicitly who he is, to the point that, you know, that's why the Pharisees wanted to kill him, because he starts saying, I'm God. I am the one that's been here the whole time. I'm the one who created everything. Through me, all things came into being. That's who he says he is. Right now, he hasn't said that. He's starting to reveal more and more and more. And the second truth is that the gospel exposes all of our hidden and not-so-hidden sin. Nothing is invisible to God, right? We've been taught many times that God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, and he's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. He can see everything. He knows everything. He's omniscient. That's the other omni word. He knows everything. So there are things that maybe we don't think are all that bad, and then we see them in light of the gospel, and, and all of a sudden we realize, oh, no, I've messed up. But the good news of the gospel, right, that's the gospel, is there's good news coming. And we'll get to that in a minute. But an example I thought of is like, I don't know how many of you guys have spent time in, in the woods, maybe when it's dark and getting lighter, but um, as an adult onset hunter, I've spent uh, my fair share of time now in the woods. And you'll get there early in the morning, it's dark outside. You get to your tree stand or your blind or however you're choosing to, to hunt. And you're sitting there and it's starting to get light and you start seeing things in the woods. And you think, oh, look. Right over there, there's a deer, it's right there. And you hear, you're hearing sounds of leaves rustling that are probably just squirrels, but you think it's a deer. And you see something over in the woods and it's shaped kind of like a deer. And as it gets lighter, you get more excited because it gets more and more deer-like. And then it gets fully bright and you realize it's just like two branches that are crossing at just the right angle and it's not a deer, it's a stump or it's like a lump in the ground. And this is the same way with the gospel, that we see everything in our existence and we can't get a full picture of it, but the gospel, the message of Jesus, Jesus himself being the lamp, is revealing to us the truths about how we are living. All sin is revealed for what it is when seen in the light of the law slash the gospel. Um, Verse 23, Jesus is again going to encourage us to listen well, and he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. And it's, I always get a chuckle out of this because it's like, well, Jesus, you're saying things, and you've already told us earlier that you're going to try and make it hard for us to understand, um, but then you're going to say, well, just keep listening. Try and understand what we're saying. So I ask, I ask the question, are you listening? Do you understand? Moving along again, verse 24. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. By the measure you used, it will be measured to you, and more will be added to you. Again, we have an encouragement to listen carefully to the parables Jesus is using. And he talks about this measure. And he's saying, well, you've got to use some measure when you're listening to these parables. And what does he mean? Well, first, if we were speaking in the original language, we would know that the word measure he's using is related to that basket he talked about earlier. So we think of, you know, you've, you've heard the word a bushel. What is a bushel? Well, if you're not a farmer of any kind, you may not know that a bushel is not just a large basket. When I was a kid, I thought it was just, oh, that big basket, that's a bushel. Well, a bushel is a specific size of a basket, right? It measures a certain amount. You might plant a field and say, oh, I harvested a 1,000 bushels from that field. And that might be good or bad, depending on your size of field. I don't know, but that's that's what he's talking about. So Jesus is using some wordplay and saying this measure that you're using, this unit of measure, if you're, when you are 
interpreting these parables, you have to start with the truths of who Jesus is for them to make any sense. So at work, I'm a chemist, and we have this, um, this thing that, does anyone know what that is? It's a scale, it's a fancy scale, but in the biz, we call it an analytical balance. And this one is one I interact with all the time. It's my bestest friend in the world, because if, if, it, if it's wrong, if it's off, all of my experiments, all the tests I do will fail, because I'll either weigh too much material or not enough material to do the testing. And that's a big problem, because what I'm testing is, is pharmaceutical products that many of you guys take to stay alive or to not have various problems happen to you. So every week, I come in on Monday, and I, I log in, because I have to like, type in a password to log into this balance, and then this, it goes, and that tells me that I have to calibrate it every week. And so the balance is saying, all right, I want you to weigh 100 grams. What does that feel like on me? And so I take this little chunk of metal that has been, I've been told by an organization with instruments far more sensitive than mine that it is 100 grams exactly. And I put it on the balance, and it says, yep, 100 grams. I know what that feels like now. And I do that with a few more weights. And so for the rest of the week, I know that my balance is going to tell me when I weigh something, it's the right weight. And if I were to mess that up, it would mess up a whole lot of stuff and create tons and tons of paperwork. And depending on what we're making, the FDA would get involved and it would be a whole problem. The same thing is happening here when Jesus is saying, pay attention to the measure you use. If I'm telling this balance that I'm giving it 100 grams, but I'm only giving it 100 milligrams, which is quite a big difference. Um, or if I'm telling it, you know, I'm, I'm weighing out a large amount, I give it a small amount, everything gets messed up. And Jesus is saying, if you are looking at what I'm telling you through the wrong lens, you're weighing it against the wrong standard, you're going to be all off here. And if you are using the good measure, if, I'm, if you understand what is happening now, you're going to understand more and more and more and more from that baseline. We use the revelation of Jesus as our measurement. And when we start with an understanding of who Jesus is, that allows us to learn even more about him. And Jesus continues here and he says, For whoever has, more will be given to him. And whoever does not have, even, that, even what he has will be taken away from him. So we'll start with just that first half. Whoever has, more will be given to him. The pursuit of Jesus leads to more Jesus. If you love Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you have the capacity to learn more about him. Once you, like, if you, um, and we think about this idea of, like, uh, more being given to us. What more could there be than, than Jesus? Well, you know me, kind of a nerd, looking into stats and figures and stuff. And I found um, this article from the Mayo Clinic about the effect of, of faith on people, on our health. And it says this, they say, most studies have shown that religious involvement and spirituality are associated with better health outcomes, including greater longevity, coping skills, and health-related quality of life, even during terminal illness, and less anxiety, depression, and suicide. Several studies have shown that addressing the spiritual needs of the patient may enhance recovery from illness. So that's just general religious belief in general. So it doesn't matter what thing you believe in, if you have a belief in a higher power, you, you get this benefit. But I think Christianity offers something even above and beyond that that's different from anything else. We just saw this video about this kid who's forced to be a, a Buddhist monk. And there were things that were probably better for his life because of that 
for a time being, but there were also things that were missing. And so when we look at our society, we see a lot of brokenness and loneliness and hopelessness. And I was thinking, well, what things, what things have been given to us because of our relationship with Jesus right here and now? So we have community. Um, look around. Because you believe in Jesus, or maybe you're just curious about Jesus and you're here, we now have this community of people that are all gathered together. Um, a faith in Jesus and a belief in Jesus gives us purpose. We know that everything we do has meaning because we have a creator who has given meaning to the universe. We have, we have a reason for being here, and we have hope. We have hope that this, what we're experiencing now, is not the end of everything. We have, we have the hope in, in the, the big thing that's Jesus lived a perfect life for us because we can't. He died on the cross for our sins because the payment for sin is death. And then three days later, he rose again and defeated death. And that we know that when we die, if we die having believed in Jesus, we're going to go and be with him for eternity. So whoever has a little bit of Jesus, you're getting so much more with that little bit of Jesus. What a bargain. <laughs> what a bargain, this Jesus. You get Jesus and you get all of these other benefits. And he who doesn't have, um, even what he has will be taken away from him. Without initially trusting in Jesus, you're going to be, that's a rejection of Jesus. You, there's no, there's no, oh, I'm apathetic about Jesus. You either believe in Jesus or you don't believe in Jesus. There's no in between. And you can't get more of Jesus if you don't have the initial trust in Jesus. And I was trying to think about, well, what is this like? And I thought about how, you know, you might have a friend that you were really close with at one point, and then eventually you drift apart, apart, and apart. Um, I had this friend in college, his name was Steve, and we met freshman year. He lived two floors down from me in the dorms, and we had like almost every class together because we were in the same major. Um, he was in ROTC, so there were some things I didn't do. Um, but because my hair has been buzzed like this for a long time, I would, we would sit next to each other in class. Um, one time, one of our professors would come over, he, he thanked me for my service, um, just because I was with the guys who were always in their ROTC stuff all the time. Um, but Steve and I were good friends. We lived in the same building freshman year. Sophomore year, he got a house, but I'd go over there all the time. We were still in classes together. Eventually, we would graduate, and we talked less, less, and less. And now I don't know where Steve is or what he's doing. I don't know what his phone number is anymore. I don't know how I would contact him, even if I wanted to. And it's as if we were never friends to begin with. Um, and this is, I think, kind of the idea Jesus is getting at, that if you, if you have Jesus, you're going to increase in your relationship with him. You're going to get more and more good from that relationship with Jesus. You're going to experience more love, more community, more, um, more relationship just with him, as well as other people. And if you don't have him, if you reject him, even if these people, you know, there are people right now he's talking to that are right with Jesus. And there are some of those people that are going to reject Jesus. And Jesus is going to go do his things, and those people are going to lose track of Jesus and not be in relationship with him at all. And this is, I think, what he's getting at. And as I'm, you know, preparing for the sermon, I've been thinking about, well, how do I illustrate this? How do I illustrate that? An illustration just fell right into my lap. Um, one of the things we've established, it's a well-established fact, I'm a big nerd about a lot of things, and one of the things I've been interested in recently is thinking about Christians throughout history who have been um, in a time in history, in a time and place where Christianity has not been um, easy, that it's not been easy to, to be a Christian in that time. And a lot of what I've been reading about has been this difference between the German Christians and what people call the confessing church of Germany. And you say, well, what's that? Well, so Hitler comes to power, and 
um, he starts making demands of the German church, demanding that they do all these different things. And at every turn, the German church is like, yep, we'll do that, we'll do that, we'll do that. And eventually they just cave completely to the Nazi regime. And then there's the confessing church. And you have heard of some of these figures like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'm sure. Well, we just talked about him in our um, Sunday school class today, at nine, sorry. Um, and so Bonhoeffer is one of the most famous ones. But you may have never heard of Franz Jägerstatter. So there he is. And you, if you know history, you're saying, well, John, he's wearing a Nazi uniform. Yes, he is. So Franz Jägerstatter was an Austrian peasant. He lived in this village that is still around today. It's really, really small. I looked, and as of like 2009, there were 600 people living in this village. Um, and from what I was reading, it's not going to be increasing, the number of people living in this village. So, so Franz Jägerstatter lived in this village. And um, he, there was one church there, and so he grew up in this Catholic church, and then he went away. Some people say he had been in this gang for a while in the town, and these, these gangs would, like, go to other villages and fight gangs from other, this was just a thing they did. you would be like, talk bad about this town, I'm going to go over there and fight them, and then they just did it all the time. So, so Franz leaves, he goes and works in this iron mine, he comes back, and he comes back quite changed, because now he has the first motorcycle that this village had ever seen. But also, he comes back completely in love with Jesus Christ. And he marries his wife. They have three daughters. And um, there's a vote for should Austria become part of Germany. And it wins like 99% of the vote. And Franz obviously is like, all right, well, I guess everyone wants to, to be a part of this. He voted no in his village, even though his village reported that 100% of the people voted yes. So, you know, there were some shenanigans afoot. Um, so anyway, he's asked to go and enlist in the army. And he goes and shows up for this basic training thing. Um, and then they're like, well, you're going to have to take this oath. You're going to have to pledge your allegiance to Adolf Hitler. And he agonizes over this. And we have a lot of his writings um, that he, he was writing this. He was worried that eventually the German authorities would not let Christians practice their faith anymore. So he wanted to catechize his daughters. So he started writing out these documents to like, teach his daughters the basics of the Christian faith. And in these writings, you can see his development and him struggling with these things. And, and so he eventually he says, I'm not going to do it. I cannot pledge my allegiance to anyone or anything but Jesus Christ. So he goes and he walks to the enlistment office or whatever, and he tells them this. And they try and convince him. Come on, you just, just, we'll put you in like a medical duty. Just, you don't have to fight, which he knows isn't true. And he's like, no, I'm not going to. So they sentenced him to death. He goes and he waits for six months for his trial. He's in the same prison as Bonhoeffer. We don't know if he met him, but they're in the same prison. And as he's going to be, he's the, the chaplain of the prisons there. He's about to be taken to the guillotine to be beheaded. And he tries to hand him this New Testament. And he says, he says you know, you can read this Bible. And, bon, and uh, Jägerstauer says this. He says, I'm completely bound to, uh, by my inner being. I'm going to read it up here because my notes are bad. I'm completely bound in my inner union with the Lord, and any reading would interrupt my communion with my God. Well, what, is, what, do you, what does this do for us? So, Franz Jägerstauer, I think, is an example who had Jesus and kept seeking Jesus and got more and more and more of Jesus, and that when Jesus says, whoever has, more will be given to him. The chaplain said that as he was walking Jägerstauer to, to the, the platform where they were going to cut off his head, He's leaving behind three young daughters, 
all under the age of like six. He has three little girls. And there's like pictures you can look up where they have the sign they're holding. It says like, come home soon, daddy. And they're writing him letters. And they're, he's sending them, he's saving oranges he gets in prison to send to his, to his family. Like this man loves his wife and his children. I cannot imagine walking up to the, seeing this thing, seeing probably someone else getting their head cut off first, and walking up to this and being like, let's do it. I'm good to go. But the chaplain said that not only was Franz Jägerstadter happy in this moment, that he had joy. Why? Because whoever has, more will be given to him. He had Jesus, and he had joy and meaning and purpose, and he knew that in a few moments he was going to have everything. He was going to have Jesus. So what is this? We have to ask these questions now that we've been asking the whole series. What does this say about Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the lamp that brings the light of the gospel. And I've been using gospel and kingdom kind of interchangeably here because at the time they probably would have done the same thing. We've talked about before how the gospel of Caesar was a thing, the good news about Caesar. There were gospels of all kinds of kings. And then the gospel of Caesar was that he had had some military victory and so now there's going to be peace throughout the region because his kingdom was here. Like there would be people who would go, if you were a Gaul, so you were in France, in modern day France, you were a Gaul, and the Romans come and conquer you, and you're like, well, that stinks, but don't worry, you'd have a messenger riding around your villages, speaking to you in a language you probably didn't understand, because you were in Gaul, and they're from Italy, and um, they're telling you the good news, that guess what, the kingdom of Caesar is here. Yes, you've been conquered, yes, we've killed your husband and your cousin and your uncle, whatever, but the good news of Caesar is here. Well, the good news of, of Christ's kingdom is here. Jesus is the light that reveals that good news. And what does this passage tell us about the kingdom? It tells us first that that it cannot be hidden or smothered. There have been attempts throughout church history to, or throughout world history, to snuff out this movement of people who love Jesus. Um, If you look at the the first 300 years of the church, it grew by 40% per decade, which may not mean much to you, but that is an insane growth. Like, if our church grew 2% per decade, we would be really excited that we're seeing so much movement of the Spirit, but 40% per decade. To give you an idea, in, in 40 AD, so like in the first decade of the church existing, um, historians think there were maybe 1,000 Christians around. In, in uh, 100 AD, they think there were around 7,500. And in 300, there were 6 million. That's quite the jump. <laughs> That's quite the jump. And Preston and I, Pastor Preston and I argue all the time about that year, right around the year 300, when... Uh, um, when Constantine started doing some stuff, and I think it's bad, he thinks it's good, we'll argue all the time for it, whatever. But what does this tell us about now? We're in this current cultural moment where, especially after the pandemic, we've seen so many people found it so easy to just disappear. I mean, look, at, look, at, look around. It's no, we're not hiding the fact that this place used to be a lot more full than it is now. And some of those people moved, um, some of those people left for other reasons, but the church in America and in the West in general has been experiencing a lot of people just disappearing. They've, they've decided that for whatever reason, they don't want to be a part of this thing anymore. They don't want to be a part of the body of the Christ, if body of Christ, if they ever were. Um, and so we can get discouraged, but we can look at this passage and we can know that whatever happens now, we look at history, we look at what Jesus is saying about how you can't put a lamp under a lampstand, you can't, or under a basket. That basket's going to catch on fire. It's not going to work. We can be encouraged that even in our own current cultural moment, the church of God is moving on. If you look in, in the south of our, of our planet, look in Africa, look in South Asia, look in South America, 
Christianity is not on the decline. Christianity is on the advance and is still continuing to grow and get more and more people involved. There are more people who are loving Jesus and having and getting more because of Jesus. And finally, we can, we can uh, not finally, I have two more, right? Yeah. I forgot to print out my slide notes, so I'm just looking off these, so I have these. All right, so the kingdom has come near. Jesus is saying again and again that I'm not here to be hidden away. God's doing something here, and you're going to know about it. I was thinking about um, Pastor Preston's sermon last week, and there's a, I relate to a lot of stuff about faith and scripture through music. And there's a song by um, this guy named John Mark McMillan. You probably know him, but you don't know him. He, he wrote um, the song How He Loves that Stephen Crowder then stole and changed the best lyric. It's a sloppy wet kiss, folks. It's not an unforeseen kiss. Um, but he wrote this song, and he, it's called um, The Road, The Rocks, The Weeds, which relates quite well to Preston's passage last week. And he's talking about, um, um, do, you know the, um, do you know the God who, who bleeds? And he talks in part of it about how, um, you know, Aphrodite would not weep, nor would Zeus die for the weak, um, but I know a Savior who's come to rest inside my pain. Um, sorry, I don't know why I'm emotional now. Um, but I think about this kingdom coming near, and that Jesus is here to feel with us and to experience life with us. He didn't just come and live a perfect life and it was easy. He experienced rejection and more pain than physical pain than you and I can ever imagine. Like, I don't know if you've looked at ancient torture devices, but the cross is one of the worst ones that has ever been devised by man, ways to kill somebody. And Jesus came near and experienced that. This is good news, and this is a truth about the kingdom, that it wasn't just a thing that happens and we get to, like, oh, it's the kingdom. Like, this is a real visceral thing. And the final thing is that the kingdom is greater than we can ever imagine. Jesus is continually revealing more and more things about, about the kingdom, and we're going to hear more and more about it. I mean, we're in chapter 4, and there's, what, 16? Are there 16 verses in Mark? Hold on, I'm going to be right before I say it. There are 16 verses in Mark. We're in chapter 4. We're a quarter of the way there. You don't think there's going to be more things revealed about the kingdom in the next, in the next lot? I can't do math right now. 12, 12 chapters. The kingdom is greater than we could ever imagine. So as we move on this week, I always want to say, well, what do we do with this? Well, we can have a lot of hope. We can have a lot of hope that we have a God who cares about us, who loves us, who has come near to us, and that no matter what we see that's discouraging in the news, there's just, I mean... The news is rough. There's all kinds of bad things happening. People are being killed all over the world for all kinds of various terrible reasons. Things are hard for us financially, whatever. We can have hope because the kingdom of God is here and it's greater than we can ever imagine. And we have a God who is shining a light for all of us to see. And that the more we know him, the more we know him. Which sounds, I like that. I just came up with that. The more we know him, the more we know him. <laughs>